0: Before we get started, follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at LaunchpadPod, and on our website, LaunchpadPod.com. Hit like and subscribe on your favorite podcatcher, and leave those reviews. It really helps us out. Today on the Launchpad Podcast, it's our first interview of 2020. We have the amazing writer, director, producer, Kenneth Johnson. This guy has done some amazing work. He did Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, The Incredible Hulk. That's right, the one with Lou Ferrigno and Bill Bixby. He did that Shaq movie, Steel, Short Circuit 2. He's done tons of stuff, but probably most notably, for us at least, he did the miniseries V. Now, if you haven't seen it, this is an incredible miniseries. It came out in 1983. It's a sci-fi epic, but it has so much allegory. It's so deep, it has such great characters, but it's the original, like, lizard people invading. Star studded cast, we have Mark Singer. That's right, the Beastmaster. You get a cameo from Robert England, Freddy Krueger before he was Freddy Krueger. It's pretty neat to see, but this is an incredible mini series. Matt actually shared it with me. That's right, we were hanging out in the launch pad, the original launch pad days, watching TV, and he showed me V, and it was mind blowing. So super cool. So, getting to talk to Kenneth Johnson today was really, really cool, and we are really excited to share his stories with you, because he's got a million of them, and he is just a really knowledgeable guy, loaded with stories from the Hollywood trenches. So, without further ado, this is Kenneth Johnson on the Launchpad Podcast.
1: Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All in. Engine-
0: we have a All right, welcome to the Launchpad Podcast. I'm Aaron. I'm Matt. And Matt, we have a special guest in the Launchpad today. We have Mr. Kenneth Johnson.
2: <laughs> that doesn't work for me. <laughs> my, my father was Mr. John. My father was Kenneth Johnson, and I was Kenneth Johnson Jr. So he was always Kenneth, and I was always Kenny. So to all of my family and friends, which now must include you, of course, it's, uh, it's Kenny. That's what my cast and my crew always call me, at least to my face.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: you know, and uh, so it's uh, it's just Kenny. But all right. thanks for the respect, but uh, screw that shit.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, This is, I can tell already, this is going to be a great talk. You and I met real quick at Comic-Con this past year, but I'm not sure if you got a chance to talk to my co-host, Aaron. This is uh, Aaron McLean. You can call him. Aaron, <laughs> <laughs> my
0: name is Boris Gump. Folks, call me
3: Boris Gump. Hey, Kenny, right.
0: thank you so much for coming on the show. Hello, Aaron. How are you? I'm wonderful. I'm super excited about this interview. Like Matt said, we saw you at Comic Con, and that was such a fun panel because Matt shared <laughs> V with me. Like he shared that with me, and to go to the panel and see you give all that insight and all that behind the scenes was so much fun. So,
2: oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. It was a, it was a good day. It's you know it's. Uh, it was only the second time I'd ever been to Comic Con. The first time was when uh, Universal was going to release the DVD set of The Incredible Hulk, and they said, "Would you come down to do a little Q and A?" And I said, "Yeah, sure. You know, I figure it's me and maybe twenty, 30... Maybe a hundred people, you know. Yeah, and they t- and they walked me into this aircraft hangar, and it was like there when you guys were there, and uh, and it just kept filling up and filling up and filling up. And there's nothing quite like walking into a room where people really like your stuff and want to be there. You know, I know
3: how that feels, but Aaron doesn't yet.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I'm sure, I'm sure he will. Tell me about this this thing that we're doing and that you guys have been doing. And I mean, uh, what is it? And how did it, I assume you're recording, right?
0: We are rolling. Basically Matt and I we were roommates in college and which college? We went to Emerson in Boston. We both studied film. Lovely. One of those roommate situations where you quickly become the best of friends. Oh well you
3: lucked out. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And we both think we're hilarious, which uh (laughs) yes. And and you think and you and you think you each are individually.
2: That's too, the thing right?
3: is I think I'm hysterical, but nobody cracks me up like this guy here, and I think the oh, feeling is mutual. That's right?
2: good. But that's listen, Susie and I have been together now what 45 years, and the only way we have survived that is by laughing a whole lot at each other. Well, see, that, my
3: wife doesn't laugh at me at all, which is why I
2: need. <laughs> Aaron. Oh, well, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a good thing. You got a friend that does, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, where are you calling from tonight? Are you in Boston still, or are you out here? Where are you?
0: So, I work in the industry. I'm the VFX supervisor for The Walking Dead, and we are in my office in Burbank. Oh, and cool. uh, Matt just came down. He lives in town, too, so we just met right. up and- we're just all plugged in, got some microphones oh, going.
2: And Too bad you couldn't get on a hit show, though, you know? <laughs> I know,
0: right? <laughs> it's it's kind of top of the game. And for, like, a horror fan as myself, and especially right. zombie horror, like, I kind of reached the right. top of the game. I got nowhere to go.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I was sorry when Frank Darabont sort of got sidelined out of it because mm. he's such a talented guy. Really? And, uh, yeah. Uh, and I am I was such a huge fan of Shawshank and Green Mile. And, uh Yeah. And his work, and uh, he's actually a very close friend of my producing partner, John Hermanson, who's been working with me on uh, on getting V, uh, try, trying, is pushing the rock up the hill to get Uncle Scrooge to open his vault.
0: Oh, I know, right?
2: But uh, John is very close to Frank and always uh, just says wonderful things about him. But
0: He's uh, just such a talent. Everything he's done, mm-hmm. everything he's touched, I mean, like, if he, if he's attached to it, you know there's going to be some quality there, so...
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other day, Susie was listening to some, uh, I don't know if she had on her iPad, some of the Italian, young boy Italian tenors were singing. And she said, whenever I hear Italian opera, I think of Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> you
1: know? <laughs> I, I said, All right.
2: I absolutely understand why. And that was Frank's bit, of course. You probably know that was not in the original story. But it's just such a funny connection that I immediately understood what she was talking about. Yeah, it was an amazing, amazing sequence, the whole thing. Anyway, so what do you want to talk about?
0: When we were at the Comic-Con panel, we heard you talking about trying to do an updated version of V, a remake, a reboot, something like that. It sounds like a really cool project. Where are you at with that? Is, is there progress? Is it coming along? What's going on, Kenny, for
2: God's <laughs> sake? As I think I mentioned at the con, we had just actually, with a week or so before that, gotten involved with Ted Field, who is opening a big movie this weekend. Uh, Jumanji, his third one, is, uh, is coming out. Right. They had a premiere just uh, two nights ago in Hollywood. I was not there. Thank you. <laughs> Ted's a studio guy and, and has worked a, done a lot of big movies I think he's got 35 or 40 movies under his belt some of which were really big hits some of which were not but his track record is, is quite good he was brought to us by a couple of friends that uh, had been out uh, sniffing around for funding and we got together one day for lunch uh, and a bunch of us and uh, sort of hit it off and said okay uh, have a run at it ted we've got a meeting this coming week with some people who are capable and have more than enough money to make the movie and a studio with which to connect up
3: that sounds good man fingers crossed something moves with that
2: you know when i begin to believe it is when i'm standing on the set we're yeah. uh, actually in the street outside outside of the, where the, in the location and the trucks are there you yeah. know and I got my breakfast burrito in my
1: hand. <laughs>
2: and, and right at that moment, I will allow myself to say, this might really happen. <laughs> you know, But it's not until my first assistant director, Vanita, says we're rolling
1: that I really uh,
2: believe it. Because I've been, as all of us, whether it's me or William Wyler or Billy Wilder or Steven Spielberg or uh, Ronnie Howard or any number of directors you can name, None of us believe it till we're there, man Until you're you know, there. and uh, because I've had over the course of my career at least six projects for TV, big projects, many series, TV movies, series and all that that went sideways and never got made because the management changed.
1: you right. know yeah. you'd make
2: the deal with somebody, and by the time you, you were ready to go, they weren't there anymore, and the new people said, we don't want to do that stuff. We want our own stuff. Yeah. It's happened with me in, in both in TV uh, at least a half a dozen or more times, probably in TV, and in features about seven times.
0: So, Kenny, what's one of the ones that got away? What's a project of yours that you wish you could have made?
2: There was one movie that I uh, script I sent to MGM back when there was an MGM over on the MGM lot. And I sent it to the, the, the guy on the head of the company on a, on a Monday. He had been a former agent, I think, of mine. And, and now he was running the MGM. And I said, okay, well, what are you, you going to do for me? You know. And I sent him a script on Monday, and he called me Wednesday and said, we want to do this. And I said, no, what do you mean? You want to you uh, develop it? And he said, no, 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 we want to shoot this script. You know, How much will it cost? And as a writer, what I always love to do is say, where would I like to go? Well, let's see, New York, okay. <laughs> okay so we'll make part of the movie in New York. And where else would I like to go? How about the Amazon? Yes. And I wrote a picture that it was, it was a very funny script. that was sort of a female Don Quixote contemporary, and it was originally titled The Mad Woman of New York. And the studio wanted to make the movie. And they sent us to, they, I said, well, I don't know. They said, how much is it going to cost? And I said, I don't know. So, well, you got to do a recce. In movies, they call them recces. and uh, TV, we call them location scouts, which makes more sense, or I guess, reconnaissance. And so they had me get uh, my team together and they sent us to New York and the Amazon for a month, (laughs) you know, and so we could try to figure out how much it was going to cost and we were building sets and I was reading every actress in town because all of them wanted to do the part. It was a pretty cool part and we're just about to roll forward and then I get a call one day and they say...
1: Listen, i got to have
2: lunch with you, man, you know, and it was the guy who had been the uh, second in charge at MGM, and suddenly he and his boss were no longer the first and second in charge at MGM, uh. And, uh, and the new guy uh, said, nah, I don't want to do that, and it wasn't <laughs> just me, it was about 10 other, you know, projects that went down the tubes. So so um, oh, I, I have learned to write as fast as I can in this town because I'm always hoping to get it written done fast so that we can get it on the stages before before it's too late for the so so it's we're too
0: far down the road for them to cancel before the management changes. Yes, that's
2: right. Exactly, the management changes, and
0: I, and I, I mean I'm
2: not alone, and people that have suffered this, and it's really true. Uh, all of us, so many of us, have been through it one way or the other.
0: It really does hit fast, but a project that the management didn't change for. You got to make the Invasion Epic V, which has affected sci-fi miniseries, how TV is made, how TV sci-fi is made. It really is a seminal piece of sci-fi work. It's a classic sci-fi invasion story. It borrows a lot from like The Day the Earth Stood Still, things like that. When you were creating this, where were you getting inspiration from sci-fi movies? What type of things were you pulling on that was like, oh, this this is something that I can put into my thing? but with a twist.
2: Well, it's interesting. And I mean, some of this you may know, so stop me if you've heard it. The idea came from reading Sinclair Lewis's novel, It Can't Happen Here, which he had written in 1935, about a rise of fascism happening in America like it was then happening in Germany and Italy with the idea of we were so smug, oh, we my USA, it can't happen here. <laughs> yeah. Like, look around you guys. <laughs> Turn on the TV right at this moment, as a matter of fact, on CNN, and you can see it happening here. It's scary. So it was about a sea change where suddenly we woke up one day and we were in another country. And I thought that would really be cool because when I conceived of it in 1981, actually to begin with, it was of course way before 9-11 there had not been a sea change in America since December 7th of 1941, when Pearl Harbor was attacked. And suddenly, we were in a different world, and everybody's life was changed automatically. And, and I thought that would be so interesting to see how a group of ordinary people responded uh, to extraordinary circumstances where suddenly everything was different. And I wrote a screenplay about a fascist, grassroots fascist uprising in the United States. That seems it, it seems like it's a good thing and the crime rate is going down because there are these gangs that are beating people up because they don't have to read them their rights, you know? And then suddenly uh, we realized that this is a, a microcosm of a macrocosm and all of a sudden, poof, we were in a different country. There were no aliens, there were no spacecraft.
0: For a miniseries packed with sci-fi aliens and spaceships, I'm really surprised to hear that it didn't start as a sci-fi project. Where did the sci-fi come from?
2: I was having dinner with Brandon Tartikoff, who was then president of NBC and, and a good friend. And we'd uh, worked together before uh, when he was working his way up the ladder at NBC. And he asked about what I had going on and, and, and was thinking about it. And I mentioned, because he was looking for some stuff to really help turn NBC around. They were in the toilet uh, in those years. And and I mentioned the script and, uh, and he said, God, it sounds great. Uh, let me read it. And I said, no, Brandon, this is not television shit, Brandon. This is a feature, <laughs> boy. You know? But, uh, but he was very persuasive, so I let him read the script. He loved it, and he said, look, it's really great. I just think, I'm not sure Americans will understand fascism. And I said, well, it's not too complicated. You put on a black shirt and shave your head and beat somebody up. So he said, couldn't it be the, an outside force like the, in those days the Soviets or, uh, or the Chinese? And, and I just didn't buy it, that they could sustain a, a long-lasting occupation of the United States. And Jeff Sigansky, who was his vice president at the time, young guy out of uh, MBA, Harvard, how about aliens, Kenny? No. So
3: see, I think most people would think you had a sci-fi background. So where does that factor in?
2: I was trained at Carnegie. It's now the Carnegie Mellon University. It was Carnegie Tech when I was there. The drama department there right. was, the, was the preeminent uh, in, the sco- in the country, a preeminent drama school. There was no film or television. Uh, they looked down their nose at it, as a matter of fact. It was all theater. But at the same time, I ran a film society for uh, the whole four years that I was there, which was <laughs> handed off to me by a senior named Bill Pence, who went on to create the Telluride Festival. And so I had this great sort of cinema training while I was also, you know, studying at, at Carnegie, the classics, from the Greeks all the way up to uh, Edward Albee and Ian and the you know, contemporary writers. And so I always envisioned having an eclectic kind of career. But when the first success you have is the bionic woman... And you're doing The Six Million Dollar Man, and suddenly you're writing and producing the number one and number three shows in America. And then Frank Price, who was running Universals, uh, came to me, called me, and said, Listen, Connie, we've just acquired the rights to some of the Marvel Comics superheroes. Which one would you like to do? And I said, None, Frank. I don't (laughs) like primary colors and spandex. And I really didn't want to do any of them. I mean, it was like uh, Captain America and the Human Torch and, uh, I don't know, a couple of other things. The Man from Atlantis and shit.
0: How did you land on the Hulk? Why did you pick that one?
2: Susie had given me a book that I had never read. She read it, of course, when she was 18 because that's who she is. And it was Le Miserables. And I was halfway through the book, so I had Jean Valjean and the fugitive concept in my head, and that became The Incredible Hulk. And I realized I could do some Victor Hugo and Robert Louis Stevenson and this ludicrous thing called The Incredible Hulk and turn it into a drama. And I agreed, and Frank shook hands with me, and I said, but the only way I'm going to do it is if you give me something classy and classic and very different that I can really get my teeth into. I had always wanted to do a miniseries of Ivanhoe, Sir Walter Scott's novel about chivalry and in the time of Robin Hood and jousting and knights and storming castles and all that shit. And Frank said, sounds good. Do The Incredible Hulk, and we'll do four hours of Ivanhoe. So I did The Incredible Hulk. I wrote the pilot script in seven days, top to bottom, and we shot the, the white pages of my first draft. And then, you know, about six months later, I said, okay, now I've written Ivan Haw ready to get going, but
0: Frank's not there anymore. Oh, no, not again. <laughs> you know, and it's suddenly the new management
2: says, forget about that. We're not going to do that. So it was frustrating, particularly because you do the bionic woman and the $6 million man, and then you do the Incredible Hulk, and the pigeonhole gets smaller and smaller, and pretty soon you're the sci-fi guy, mm-hmm. you know. And so when I'm sitting with Brandon and Jeff, and Jeff said, how about aliens, Kenny, instead of the Soviets or the Chinese? And I said, Jeff, I don't want to do that. Ah. You know, I wanna keep I wanna keep it real and Brandon said, Well just think about it, just think about it. Just, think, just go home and think about it. Okay. So I went home and I thought about it and I thought, It's really a brilliant idea. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> yeah. It's really a brilliant idea because I can tell the story that I wanted to tell, which was not about aliens and, and reptilian people and spacecraft, but about power. V was always about power about uh, hyperpower, any hyperpower rolling in, and the people who either suck up to that force and collaborate, or just try to keep their heads down. And if I don't bother them, they won't bother me, you know, if I'm not a scapegoat of one sort or another. And then there are the the, the heroes, the people that become the heroes of the resistance, which say, no, this power is being abused. And to characterize V as an invasion picture, I, I never have. It's really about occupation. It's really... What I set out to do originally, where we were suddenly in a country where you can't trust people, and and you don't know if your son is going to inform on you, mm-hmm. and if the person that you're sleeping with is on really on your side. And to me, that was way was way more intriguing. And that's one of the problems I've had in setting it up as a picture, because when the word got out that I had the motion picture rights uh, four or five years ago, I mean, I had a lot of new best friends.
1: Uh, all of <laughs>
2: all of the stu- all the studios came at me and said. We'd really, we really want to do this, man. We want to buy the rights, and here's this obscene amount of money. We'll back this truck up and dump the money on your lawn. And I said, well, uh, I'm writing and directing. Well, you certainly produce. We might let you write, but for a director, I mean, we're really sort of thinking Michael Bay or somebody. And I said, no. And what happens, uh, Matt and Aaron, in case you haven't noticed this already, when you say no in Hollywood, they suddenly say, okay, okay. We understand. How much money do you really want? You know, and, uh, I had to say, no, you guys don't get it. I want to protect this, and uh, and it's not uh, an invasion picture. It's a picture about how real people deal with this, this situation. There's no generals in it. There's no uh, you know presidents who are fighter pilots and and all of that sort of shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: they
0: give good speeches, though. I got to say.
2: Oh well, well, there's that. <laughs> it's actually funny because we were at an awards ceremony one night and maybe it was one of the saturn awards or something and afterwards Susie and i are walking back to the, to the into the parking lot and these two guys came running up after me and said hey kenny kenny can Ken, we just wanted to say hello and i said well sure hi how are you who are you and they said oh i'm dean devlin and this is roland emmerich oh wow and i said wow really <laughs> you know i said where's my cut of the 400 million you know <laughs> And they said, yeah, yeah, we just wanted to say we've been ripping you off for years. And and I said, yeah, no shit.
3: (laughs) (laughs) At least they noticed. You know, it's really interesting to hear the genesis of of that story because there's obviously so much subtext and some of it is not even that sub. But, you know, the, the original miniseries came out a year after I was born. So I don't okay. think I saw it on the first run, but it reran. Well, if you'd really been paying attention, I mean, come on. You know, <laughs> well, I but... I guarantee you I would have because I remember the first time I saw it, <laughs> it was it was obviously a rerun, but they were airing you know bumpers and promos and stuff for it, and I right. remember being in a fast food restaurant with my mom and being like, "Mom, we have to get home for V. We have <laughs> to get home for V." <laughs> and I like this is an actual memory that I have, and I remember her trying to explain to me that it doesn't come on till seven thirty. It's like, you know, it's three 30 now we have hours, but I, I honestly, I don't think I was in kindergarten yet. I was that young and I was so excited because I love the, the promise and the premise of it. And I'd watched it multiple times. It was one of the shows that I watched with my dad and we would revisit it every so often. Wow. And I remember being like in late, probably late elementary school and mm-hmm. watching it with my dad. And when David comes out in that, youth visitor, you know, the youth, the friends of the visitors outfit, (laughs) I remember looking at my dad and saying, you know, that kind of reminds me of Hitler Youth. And I said that. And as I said that, I looked back at the suit and I said to my dad, and the the visitor insignia kind of looks like a swastika, uh, just sure missing parts.
2: Sure does, doesn't it? But <laughs> yes. like I was a kid,
3: I was like, you know, I was maybe in fourth or fifth grade, and I remember my dad, who right. I still idolize. I remember him.
2: But being fourth or fifth grade, that's that's really that's really being cognizant. I gotta say, right, right. And but go ahead.
3: I saw my dad, who I is one of my heroes to this day. I saw in his face him mm-hmm. getting proud that I understood that without having but been you got told.
2: It. Exactly. I would have been
3: proud too. And I remember him saying. They did that on purpose. And he explained that uh, he must have read in an article somewhere that you had wanted to do your original story. And then they put the, 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 the veneer of aliens and stuff over that. And I remember being mm-hmm. so impressed and proud that I had made him proud the and connection. impressed. Yeah, so, no, like, well, we it. have this thing. And, you know, Aaron and I have been doing the show for years. And we've mm-hmm. talked to some people that we really care about. I don't know that my dad has ever asked any questions except when I told him I was interviewing you. He was like, <laughs> kenneth the guy he's the guy that did v and i was like my dad doesn't know any of that junk but i was he was like so excited that i was gonna get to talk to you
2: that's really cool and, and flattering and and i'm it, it makes me happy
3: well like for me as a kid it was a way to frame world history
0: and that's no easy thing to do
2: we were working so under the gun and working so hard uh and scrambling and uh, just to give you a quick idea of it, uh, I mean, you guys know about movie production and television production. So here's this four-hour miniseries that, that I'm going to do for Brandon. And I mean, for a four-hour miniseries, you know, what kind of prep? Maybe at least four months or so or, or five, maybe, if, you know, if you're lucky. Wait for this. From the day Brandon read the uh, the script and said, go, until the day I said, action, my prep time was two and a half weeks oh that's
3: ridiculous
2: it's impossible i mean and especially <laughs> yeah,
3: back. especially you have so many like that a very ambitious project from the you know <laughs> oh, i yeah. mean you you know
2: you were there well that's it i mean it was a kid it was a cast speaking speaking role i think there were 60 60 or 65 speaking roles in the original four-hour miniseries uh there was all the ships that we had to build There was all the you at least the big mothership set that we had to build which we were out of the 50-day shoot, we were only on that set for like three days out of the whole shoot. Wow. But we needed it. And, and because you, you know there, were no, there was no CGI or anything right. like that, you had to do matte paintings, which you couldn't move the camera, and uh, you had to do motion control where you couldn't track things. And I was working at the state-of-the-art with all the Stevens guys and George's guys. It's one thing when you're doing Star Wars and you can, you can have those ships flying against a black background in space. But when you try to put them in the real world, it's really hard to do, particularly on a on a TV, uh, you know, kind of budget. And we had, I think, it was the most expensive miniseries per hour that had been made at that time. It ran up to about eight or ten million dollars. We never quite got the final assessment because we were three weeks into the filming before they even had a budget, and then the budget was so wrong that it didn't matter.
0: Was it completely written by the time you started, or were you shooting pages and oh, writing no, no, the no. next I ones?
2: Wrote after I. Had agreed to do, to 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 go down that road and and I uh, worked up the story. It took me about a little less than a month to to get the story written. And I and I called Brandon and the guys at NBC and I said, "Okay, story's done." And they said, "That's great. Send it over." And I said, "No, I'm not going to let you read it. I'm going to come and tell you the story because ah. you won't read it." Smart. And I wanted to, I wanted to be able to be in the room and head off any problems that they had. You know, so I could just <laughs> slam dunk the sucker. And, and literally, I, I said, "You carve out two hours. I'm coming to your office." And I came over the next day and literally sat there for it was about an hour and a half and told them the whole story from beginning to end. No names of characters. It was the cameraman, the intern, the uh, the, the, the teenage girl. The, you know, it was like it was all like that because they'd never remember all the names, and I didn't even have names at that point anyway. And they heard the whole pitch. And Brandon said, "That's great. Go write the script." And and I came back nine. days later with a 230 page screenplay. And for the most part, we shot the white pages of my first draft Uh, except for a few scenes that I cut uh, while we were in prep. I got no notes. I got no changes. Brandon just said, go do it, Kenny. It was the ideal sort of way to work and it was extraordinarily challenging, and the time frame that we had to work in was just, was just so, so tight because Brandon, literally, the, ne- the network was in the toilet, and they needed something that was big and splashy that would really attract a big crowd, and Brandon really realized this could do it.
0: Alien invasions are splashy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so when we, as we were going along, Brandon said, listen, an, uh, we have a new guy in marketing uh, doing our advertising and publicity and promotion and all that, and I, I really want you to meet him because he's, he's this terrific guy. And I said, OK, and his name is Steve Somer, And my head dropped and my shoulders sank and I about dropped through the floor because Steve Somer had previously been the head of all of that for CBS when I was doing The Hulk. And we had had fights like <laughs> through the roof because, I, you know, I sold my soul to Bill Bixby to do The Incredible Hulk to play David Banner. And Steve takes out the, ad, the, the full page ads and like TV Guide and the newspapers and everything full shot big shot of Lou Ferrigno with a banner headline green monster on the loose and down in the bottom in little small letters starring Bill Bixby you know and I mean so first of all (laughs) I had to peel my my star off the ceiling
1: and then I would have
2: fight I had fight after fight after fight with Steve it was because he just just I was so frustrating so now okay my good luck is now he's been hired at NBC so I decided. All right, how am I going to do this? And I said, Okay, I'm just going to face the tiger. And I went in and I said, Steve, went into his office at NBC. I said, Look, you don't like me because you think I meddle in your stuff. I have problems with you because sometimes I don't. I think you miss the point of what I'm trying to say and the best way to sell it. And I said, Let me just give you an idea and see what you think. And I said, Did you ever see the Nazi propaganda posters from World War II with the Wehrmacht soldiers with the little Dutch girls sitting on their shoulders? You know. And they're all smiling, and the Nazis are reaching out and looking very ideal and everything, and we're the Nazis, we're the new guys in town, we're going to protect you from the English. And he said, yeah. I said, okay, now um, let's create our own posters, uh, propaganda posters. The, visitor, uh, the alien visitors are our friends. Friendship is universal. Arms around old people, little girls on the shoulders, uh, big mothership in the background hovering over a city, and just put them up as propaganda posters. Don't say anything about the network or the show or anything. That's genius. Yeah. I said three weeks before the show airs, put up in posters in the subways, on bus stops, on billboards, and just put them up the first week. I said then the second week. Send out a bunch of kids in each town where you got the posters with cans of red spray paint and graffiti your own poster with a big red V, just it's like the amazing. resistance did in World War II. And then I said, on the last week, just put a little banner in the corner that says the battle begins on NBC Sunday night, May the 1st. And Steve, bless his heart, came out of his chair and he said, that's fucking brilliant. We've got to do that. And, we're gonna, and he did, bless his heart. They spent about over, I don't know, a million and a half, two million dollars. And it set everybody on fire because they, it was so creepy, you know? And at the same time, we did a countdown for the, the last 21 days, only 21 days until they arrived. And Steve had discovered in, in uh, testing stuff that people seemed to be a little disappointed when the aliens sort of looked like us to begin with, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And so we decided not to show them in any of the trailers. But the teasers just kept counting down, and between the, between the, uh, the Billboard campaign and the on-air teasers, they came, <laughs> you know, and, and we had a, a 40 share, which was just humongous. It was the number one show in the country. It is uh, 80 million people tuned in, and just in North America alone, it's still in the top 15 highest-rated miniseries ever. It is, I am told, it is the highest-rated work of science fiction in the history of television. Because nobody's ever been able to find anything that had more. You know, Star Trek ran longer, yeah, but not with that number.
0: Not with those numbers. I mean, and yeah. just that ad campaign alone is, <laughs> I, and I, t- I tried to look into this, it's like one of the first, quote unquote, viral, viral marketing yeah. <laughs> you know, it's campaigns so funny. ever uh, done. A
2: couple of people have said that exact phrase to me just in the in the last year or so. I never really thought of it, but you're right, it was that kind of viral thing. To me it was so simple and so obvious though, and that's where I had gotten the idea for the title of the picture anyway. In my research, I kept seeing these Nazi propaganda posters with a big V on it, and I thought, that's gotta be the name of the name of the piece. You know, I mean that's what it is, you know, it's about V and then, then people said, Oh yeah, it stands for visitors. No. Yeah. It's for <laughs> victory. Don't uh, listen to old uh, you know, Leonardo Gemino, go that's tell right. your <laughs> friends.
3: In the suitcase.
2: <laughs>
3: she carried you out.
2: It was a really potent thing. But then, then, before the show actually aired, the reviews started coming in from Tom Shales, of The Washington Post, Howard Rosenberg at the L.A. Times, who never
3: liked anything,
2: and he was just rapturous. And uh, the New York Times, the New York Daily News, the San Francisco Chronicle, Philadelphia, I mean, it was like you, you hired somebody to write your reviews. They were so staggeringly good, and they started running those quotes, too. So we really built up a momentum. And then, fortunately, the show didn't disappoint. And now, this takes me back to the most impactful, I think, day and and one of the proudest days of my whole career was we were working so quickly. I had four different editors who had divided up the work between them. And so they were each doing different pieces and different sequences and not necessarily in order, you know. And finally, I said, look, guys, we got to see what this... They, they got to the point where they said, okay, we think we got it all stuck together at least. And I said, okay, we got to look at it. So we went into one of the small screening rooms right outside the executive offices at Warner's, uh, screening room number two. It only holds about, I don't know, 15 people. And it was just me and the editors. And we ran the first cut for us to see and uh there was no music there was no sound there was no sound effects there was no special effects at all visual effects uh, nothing it was just slugs saying mothership here you know and it was it was just totally raw it was just the actors working and it took your head off it was just uh staggering because uh, i had managed to get wonderful performances out of every single cast member And they were all so uniformly good. And this was after the tragedy that we had. What tragedy? Three weeks into the filming, one of my leading ladies had been murdered. The young girl, Dominique Dunn, who was the teenager in Poltergeist, was playing our teenage girl, and she got strangled by her boyfriend in her front yard, went into a coma, and a week later I was with her family when they pulled the plug, and we were in the middle of filming.
0: That's terrible.
2: I mean, it was an emotional blow for everybody, plus we had to recast, plus we had to reshoot weeks of, of filming or more, and it was tragic. But now here we were sitting in this screening room, and when the lights came on, we we're all looking at each other like, going, holy shit, this is really something. And we knew that. Visual effects, as as cheesy as a lot of them look now, we knew that they were just going to be the icing on the cake, combined with the you know 100 piece symphony orchestra and the sound effects and all that we that we put together.
0: That's actually one of my favorite moments in production. Is after you've put in all the hard work of shooting it, you get it into post and you've gotten the first edit, and you get to see that all your hard work has paid off. It will work. It's still a little rough around the edges, but you know that the. Gold is there. You know that it's going to work, and you know that it's going to be worthwhile.
2: But the one problem was, I I called Brandon, and I said, hey, I I think you're really going to be happy. You know, it really, really, really looks good. There's just one problem. And he said, what's the problem? And I said, well, it's not four hours. And he said, well, how long is it? And I said, it's four hours and 15 minutes with commercials. And he said, well, well, you know, just trim a little bit here. And I said, you know what? I really need you to come over and help me, because I don't know what to cut that won't hurt the picture.
0: Oh, man.
2: So, Breton came over the next day. Now, most nowadays, particularly, no executive saw something that raw. You know, you at, at least did a temp score. Or something, right. Right, you wouldn't right? want
0: to. They'd run screaming, right. right? No,
2: no, no, because they don't. They don't. They can't imagine it. You know, <laughs> they don't know. They you know, canceled. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's like it's like Philistines. So Brandon sat there and watched the same cut that we had watched the day before and the lights came up and he's just sitting there sort of pulling at his lower lip and I'm going, okay. And he said, can we go outside? And I said, yeah, yeah, sure. Oh Oh, no. You know, and and we go outside and and he's still pulling at his lip and he's frowning and I said, what do you think? What are you thinking? And he said, I'm thinking that I have to go to the affiliates and get 15 more minutes. Nice. I, I said, can you do that? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think anybody ever has because, you know, networks are at the at the behest of their affiliates. But he said, I'm going to try. He said, because we can't draw. We can't. There's nothing we can cut here. And there was nothing left on the cutting room floor either. I mean, I, every line that I wrote and every scene that I shot, literally every shot that I shot was in the movie. Wow. People who so said, "Oh, we'd love to see the deleted scenes." There were no deleted scenes. What? <laughs> yeah, no, true. It was every 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 line I wrote was in the movie, and every shot that I made was in the picture. And Brandon got the time, and bless his heart. And was, even when I had first told him the story. uh, he said, how long do you think it is? And I, he said, it feels like six hours. And I said, I think I can do it in four. And I couldn't. <laughs> it was 4.15, but by God. Because he, he said at the time when I read him the store, told him the story. He said, well, however long it is, that's how long it'll be. And he was good to his word, man. Wow. And then they put the money into the advertising and promotion. So when it all came together, it was really the most wonderful kind of perfect storm that you could have. But it all was really based on... The emotional life of the characters, the, the success of V didn't have anything to do with the visual effects or lizard people or that shit. It had to do with the real human drama and the real human emotions that were going on in it. At this meeting I had with this potential financier a couple of weeks ago when he was saying, well, how is the movie going to be different from the original miniseries? And we're having another meeting this week so we can explain it to him again. Sometimes you have to explain it more than once to the suits. <laughs> I said, there's a lot of changes, there's a lot of fixes, there's a lot of enhancements, but I'm doing a remake. I'm not doing a reimagining, you know. I'm, I love that word. It's usually synonymous with disaster. Right. I said, there's a whole lot of reasons why V was successful to begin with. And I don't want to reinvent the wheel. I don't want to uh, try to fix things that aren't broken. There's a lot of stuff that really works. And, of course, there will be changes. There was no Internet and iPads and cell phones and all of that stuff.
0: Also, fascism has changed. I think one of the main yeah. things about the original V was you had a model of fascism that a lot of the baby boomers and their children recognized and could point to. And nowadays it's snuck in in a different way. It's seeped into <laughs> our lives in a different way. It's seeped into our culture in a different way. Yes. And I think even if you address even part of that, you're yeah. in a whole new, entirely new mm. alien regime. Well,
2: there's a new mindset, which is very true. The other thing, too, that I, that I have reminded them from the beginning is part of the reason that he was so successful is because it really is Spartacus and the revolt of the slaves. You know, I mean, it really is the American Revolution. And, of course, World War II was, is the, was the most obvious example of it. You're right how it's, it's creeping around us right now. I mean, look, my God, look what happened yesterday in, in Jersey City with people walking into a Jewish deli and killing people and targeting them. It wasn't like they were shooting randomly. It was, this is where we were going. And the amount of hate crimes that have, you know, it's a very, very dangerous place we are right now in, in this moment in our country. That I, that I should be revisiting this at this moment is particularly ironic, I would say. Again, because it is a timeless tale, because the the idea of a people oppressed by some sort of hyperpower that has run rampant it has been happening more and more, and it see, just seems to keep on happening. So I think that's part of the reason that I want to, I've been trying to protect the project and make sure that. I've got my finger on the quality control. Right. It's funny because when I was going around and around with the networks about the studios about it, Susie really framed it for me. She said, "All you have to do is ask yourself one question: Would you rather the movie never got made than got made wrong by the wrong people?"
3: Right. Yeah. You want stories to have depth, not just explosions all over.
2: That's it. Because Susie, she and I were at the premiere of when, at the, the first Incredible Hulk
3: movie. <laughs> The
0: Ang Lee one?
2: Yes, the Ang Lee one. And uh, and it was, I mean, beyond uh, awful.
3: Yeah, talk <laughs> about someone who missed the premise of what it oh, was.
2: Oh, well, the whole thing. I mean, the, all of it, you know, it was so bad. And the only line that got a rise out of the audience was the joke that I taught, did it as a throwaway. Right. Don't make me angry, right? You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And it's funny because after the premiere, uh, and I had nothing to do with the movie, After the premiere, Susan and I were trying to sneak out the back door, and one of the variety guys grabbed my my sleeve and said, Mr. Johnson, don't make me Ang Lee. You wouldn't like me when I'm Ang Lee. (laughs) 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 And, And it was like, perfect, man. But it opened big. The first weekend, you know, $75 million. Okay, doing great. Until the second weekend, where it dropped off 75%, which was the biggest fall off that any movie had ever had in the history of Hollywood, apparently.
0: Well, it's very interesting because the Hulk, both the TV show that you made and the Ang Lee property, is one of the first Marvel ones to be made into something, into a movie, into a TV show. Right. Why is the Hulk the go-to? And it's like Captain America is an easy, it's a guy in a suit punching things. Like, why is the Hulk the <laughs> it's one... It's
3: easier to put on the screen.
0: I, I guess the big green monster seems to be the hardest thing to put on screen, as opposed to a guy in red, white, and blue spandex.
2: Well, it's funny, because when, when, when Frank came to me with the five Marvel comic superheroes, Captain America was one of them. And it was Captain America, uh, Ms. Marvel. I remember her when she was Mary Marvel. Then there was the Human Torch, there was the Man from Atlantis, and there was the Incredible Hulk. And I mean, please, I wasn't going near any of that stuff. You know, it just... <laughs>
3: I'm no nerd.
2: I don't want to do any comic book stuff. And when I wrote the script, that's part of the reason I changed his name from Bruce Banner to David Banner because of the comic book alliteration. You know, Clark Kent, Peter Parker, Lois Lane, Lex Luthor, you know, it's all comic book stuff. And I explained it to Stan and I said, look, I'll put it on the grave marker, man. David Bruce Banner, okay? But I'm trying to make it more real, Stan. And and Stan got it, bless his heart, because he really got behind it. The the one funny story about the Hulk is in the second two-hour movie that we did, I wrote a scene where the Hulk had a fight with a bear. Have you heard that story? Oh, yeah
3: but our listeners might not have
2: yeah because i was always looking for worthy adversaries so that he wasn't just pushing guys around you know right so hulk fights bear all right and, <laughs> and i sent the i sent the scripts to stan just out of courtesy he wasn't really having any any giving me notes or any input or anything but i just say just so you know what we're doing here's what we're doing he was in new york and i and i sent him the script and he wrote me back right away and he, he called me he said, oh god grant the script is fantastic i love it it's a bear the fight with a bear is great but it ought to be a robot bear.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> and I said, Stan, um, let me explain. Uh, you know, uh, it, it should not be a robot bear. Here's why. The audience will only give you so many buys, okay, before right. they, they throw up their hands and say this is child's play or whatever. I said, now we're asking the audience to buy that Bill Bixme metamorphoses into Lou Ferrigno. I said, Stan, that is a huge,
1: gigantic buy." <laughs> okay.
2: Now, if we had a robot bear, he said, well, yeah, but on the bionic shows, you have robotic stuff. And I said, yes, but in the bionic shows, hello, we're in the world of robotics, you know? Right. Some of them are part of human beings, but yes, I did the fembots and that stuff. But they were, that was that world. But this is the real world. And we went around and around and around about it because he just said, no, this will be so great. And I had decided that I wanted to take Lou to New York and run the Hulk through Times Square. Yes, Partly just to see if anybody would notice.
3: (laughs) That was season one, right?
2: Uh, That was season one, yeah. Terror in Times Square. So we shot the whole, the bulk of the picture, obviously in in L.A. on the on New York street. But I took Lou to New York, and we're running right up Broadway with a study cam and me and Lou Ferrigno, and the cops trying to keep us from getting killed, and lots of people watching, which is fine because they would, wouldn't they? You know. Yeah. And it was freezing. It was March, god it was cold, and poor Louie running around with hardly anything on, and his whole family came over to to visit. They were all in his trailer. say Tony, Vinny, hey Louie, so we died, Solly. How you doing, man? You know, the whole family talked like Lou did. It was great. <laughs> Louis used to say to me, Kenny, why doesn't the Incredible Hulk have more dialogue? (laughs) And I'd say, well, partly Louis, because he didn't come from Brooklyn. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we broke for lunch, and and Stan's office was over uh, over on 6th Avenue, and there I was on 7th, and I thought, okay, shit, I really got to go and say hello, even though we haven't resolved our robot bear problem. (laughs) <laughs> and went up to his office came bounding out kenny 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 did you get my did you get my letter i sent you a special delivery letter now you guys probably don't even know what a special delivery letter is but that was in the old days <laughs> when you wanted a letter to get through in a hurry you said it's special delivery and they would send a special man you know a guy out and put the letter in somebody's hand no i gee i missed the letter stan what did it say And he said it said about the bear It was about the bear man about the bear I I said, okay. He said, it said you were right and I was wrong. I said, oh, good, Stan. I'm glad you came down to that. <laughs> But he really got it because I wanted to keep the whole thing as real and 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 make it as much of a Greek tragedy as as I could. And I know when Bill's agent uh, gave him the script, Vix said, "I'm not going to read anything that's called the Hulk. I couldn't put the word incredible on it. I, I was it was that was beyond the pale. And I never called him the Hulk ever in any of the scripts. He was always referred to as the creature because I just I mean, please, the only person who ever called him the Hulk was Jack Colvin's character. Which that's was right. That's right. Because he's working for the National Inquiry. You know, of course, searching for a large hulking man, you know, (laughs) creature actually.
0: The Hulk was one of those shows, like I remember it being on as a kid and, and here's a really weird thing that got me into not only special effects, special effects makeup, the idea of what you could do with it, it's a Mr. Rogers segment yeah. where he went and interviewed <laughs> yes, Lou. Mr.
2: Rogers came to see, wanted to show the children that he's just—he's not really like that. This is Lou, and then
0: and then he'll put the makeup on. And and he put the makeup on, yeah.
2: That's
3: right. I remember watching that as a kid, too. I
0: saw that, and immediately I'm like drawing on my face with a marker and be like, look at his
1: face. Oh,
2: yes. I know, it's true. Well, I'll tell you the interesting thing, though, uh, about the Hulk, about the Bionic Woman and Six Mill, about certainly V and Alien Nation and virtually all of my work. The largest single segment of my audience is adult females. And it was true of all of those shows. The lar- the largest section of our audience was adult females, and then adult males, and then teens, and then kids. And the reason the Hulk was, I think, so successful for- was for a couple reasons. It's first of all, we've all had that feeling where you just are boiling, and you you know you can feel in your stomach that you're gonna kill somebody. Even as a kid, you've had those feelings. As an adult, we've all certainly had those feelings. So it was a feeling that people could sympathize with. That was part of it. But the other aspects of it had to do with the humanity of what the Hulk was really about was trying to find self-control. I mean, that was a theme that ran through the the whole thing. Bill Bixby's whole quest as David Banner was to make the series come to an end,
1: <laughs> you know?
2: Yeah. That was part of the, the irony of it, because uh, I didn't certainly want to do a show that uh, that didn't have some depth and substance to it, so we were always looking for ways to try to find out, okay, well, how does the Hulk aspect, the Hulk concept, manifest itself in other people? With Banner, it happens to be anger. With some other people, it might be drugs or drink or obsession or sexuality or whatever. What is their trigger thing that they have got to control? And so we tried to to try to thread as much as we could that kind of themes into it. At the very beginning, of course, I I think the CBS thought it was going to be just a kid's show and a comic book thing. And Certainly the kids love to see Big Green Guy crash through a wall. Then the adults very quickly realized, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's more going on here. Part of the reason I went to Bixby to do the lead was because he was a classy guy with a big TV following. He was a big TV star. But I had also seen him do a play on PBS in 1973. Bixby played the lead. It was about this group of people that found themselves in a steam bath. That was the name of the piece, Steam Bath. You can rent it on DVD from Netflix. If you read it, you will see what I saw. You will see Bill Bixby do everything <laughs> that you saw in five years of The Hulk. He just commanded the piece in a way and all of the different emotions and the roller coaster. Because what happens is these people in the steam bath begin to realize, how did we get here and why can't we get out of here? <laughs> you know? And ultimately, they begin to realize they're in purgatory. And it was an off-Broadway play that they had done as a TV piece. And it was really... And, and Bill's performance had stuck with me from 1973 until I wrote the pilot for, for The Hulk in 1977. He was the first and only actor I ever sent it to. And when his agent finally talked him into reading it, he called me that uh, that night at the studio and said, Kenny, can I come talk to you tomorrow? And I always joked that whenever Bill came into a room, it was like the first eight bars of tiger rag. You know, it was like, how oh, tiger! <laughs> <laughs> He had this enormous force of nature quality about him. And, uh, you know, you get right up in your face. Is this what we're going to do? Is this gonna, am I going to get to suffer? Is this going to be a drama? Is it going to be a psychological? I'm going, yeah, yeah, that's what it is, man. And he said, uh, will you stay with the show as long as I do? That's when I began to hear the, the strains of Faust playing in the background,
1: you know? <laughs>
2: and, uh, but I said, Bill, I will do that. And that was our deal, and I did. And we saw it through to the end together. And we had lots and lots of knockdown, dragout drag-out arguments, but not one argument that was about bullshit. It was always about, this is not the right line. Do you think this is the right line? I don't know if Dr. David Benner would do that. Well, of course he would. I created the character, but I played the character. You know, we'd go back and forth. And then our, our rule was, whoever's right gets to win. <laughs> and <laughs> and people would say, well, well, that's crazy. How do you know? And I said, Yeah, we knew. You'd know. <laughs> we know. Eventually, either he'd wear me down or he'd convince me or vice versa. Then we'd move on. But it was never about nonsense. It was never, I'll be in my trailer with the vapors, you know, kinds
3: of nonsense. It's interesting to hear you say that because it seems from from what I've seen of you, and uh, Aaron and I had the pleasure of watching you on a panel with Mark Singer for V <laughs> right. for San Diego Comic Con. Right. And I've also seen you in some behind the scenes footage. And it really seems like, and I don't want to use this term, but like an actor's director. And it seems like you are <laughs> treating them both as the professional actors that you need on your set, but also understanding that they are human that is trying to do their job. And to watch you shoot the shit and, and reminisce and talk about V with Mark Singer, yeah. you guys don't read as people that have worked together. You guys read as friends as brothers it seems <laughs> well, that you of course, you, know, all of that. you have that brotherhood of being in the trenches together but it seemed more like it almost seems like you guys did you know years and years and years and years of something together the, the way that right. you guys had that shorthand when we saw you right and if you guys want to see a snippet of that if you get the v blu-ray that has come right. out a lot uh, in the last couple months there's some behind the scenes stuff and you have obviously a very informal laid-back attitude about you which i think <laughs> is part of it but hearing you talk about Bill Bixby and Lou Fregno and some of the others that you've mentioned it yeah. just seems that you kind of actors are more than just a tool to you and it seems like you really are able to connect with them
2: it's funny you said you said you said a couple things that I want to r- r- refer to yeah no to. please
3: i want to hear how you feel about I, that i
2: have a uh, fil- i have a filmmaking seminar that i've uh, that i created about God, i got it almost 19 years ago now, one of my favorite actor, actresses, Carrie Kane, who's worked with me a lot over the years, she's an acting coach as well. And she kept saying, why don't you do a directing class? And I said, oh, an, you know, come on, then, who cares? You know, she just she kept after me, and finally, she says, just sit down and start to write an outline. And so I did that about, uh, about 20, almost 20 years ago now. I started writing an outline, and after about two hours, I remember shouting out to Susie in the other room. I said, hey, you know what? I know stuff. <laughs> you know? <And> like, <laughs> when you're doing it, you don't think about it. And I turned it into this, uh, this uh, filmmaking class, which is now called The Filmmaking Experience, Life in the Trenches. That's what what you just said a minute okay. ago, and it's because I want to try to give the students a sense of what it's like to be in the trenches. I just did a, a piece of it uh, Monday night this this last week. The sessions run about three hours or so each, and uh, and there's like three, four, four sessions generally in the whole sequence. Each night, about half of it is on the screen so that I can show them what we did and then show them behind-the-scenes footage about how we did it and why we did it this way or that way or the other way and give them a feeling of what it's like to be in the trenches. You know, And one of the first things I tell them, uh, and it's designed for like uh, master students, uh, you know, directing major master students, and the first thing I say to them, well, the first thing I say to them is, do you love this business? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they all go, oh, yeah, yeah. And I said, I don't think I can hear you. <laughs> you know, Do you love this business? Oh, yeah, yeah. I said, no, I'm not hearing you, you know, until they're finally shouting at me. I said, yes, good. That's where you need to be because otherwise, if, you're, if you don't love it that much, if you don't love this business like you're underwater when you're not doing it, like you can't breathe, then you should try another career because this is not going to work for you. Because you will get so much rejection, and so you 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 got to love it that much. Because if you don't, I'm telling you, there's somebody be- sitting behind you that does, and right. they will do it. But you you know the other thing I tell them is you want to you want to be a good director? Yes, I say go take acting classes. Yeah. And I say, I, I, and I always say, I don't mean audit acting classes and sit there and watch. You know, I say, I mean get the script in your hand, and some of them look at me and the blood drains from their face. You know, well, I'm not an actor. I don't know how. To, I said learn to be an actor. When I was at Carnegie, as I said, there was no film or TV, and I was a directing major. And uh, as a directing major, you got uh, everybody's classes. You got the costume design, the scene design, the, uh, the sound design, the production design, all the writing classes all the acting classes. You had to study Stanislavski. You had to uh, read *An actor prepares. You had to take... uh, Actually, our whole freshman class year was textbook right out of Stanislavski's book, An Actor Prepares. And then the second year was uh, building a character, uh, Stanislavski again. By the time I got out of Carnegie... I had been on the stage a lot too, and I had l- learned what you need as an actor, you know, what I needed to get from a director, what I needed to get from, what kind of help I needed to get to where I needed to get to. In Hollywood, it's 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 weird. I mean, so many of these men and women come out of film school and they can take an Aeroflex apart in the dark and put it back together, talk lenses and shit, but you ask them to get a performance and they're scared because they don't know how, and, they, and they're scared of actors. There are a lot of, actually a lot of major directors, including William Wyler and Cameron and others will tell you that 75% of directing is in casting the right person. And part of that is because a lot of those were really film people who didn't know really how to talk to actors or give them what they need or find out what they were lacking. You know, I heard one time Chris Nolan talking about how he always likes to ask an actor uh, when he's meeting them for the first time, big star or anybody, he says to them, what's your process? And as soon as an actor hears you, you say, what's your process? They know that you know how to talk to
1: actors. <laughs> you know?
2: And it's, it's, uh, it's true. And he really sort of put it in a nutshell like that. I hadn't quite thought of it that way before, but it's true. Because of that, I always try to weave constantly through the directing class is that one of the director's principal jobs is to make everybody comfortable Give them a sense that they're protected. Give them a sense that you're listening to them and open yourself up to them so they'll open themselves up to you. Normally, somebody comes in to read for a role. The director, writer, producer, casting director is sitting behind a table and the poor actor has to sit in the hot seat in front of the table, you know. Yeah. And I just, back when I was at Universal, I said, I don't want to do that. I want to meet him at the door. I want to bring him in. I want to say, hi, what have you read? Do you know the whole, did you read the whole script or just read the sides? Or do uh, you have any questions about the character or anything? And then they sit down to, to read with the casting director, who often is a failed actor that can't read very well. <laughs> and back then, doing the Bionic shows, I, as a matter of fact, I had this old casting director, Phil Benjamin, rest his soul. Who used to drink his lunch and then come to the casting sessions?
0: Oh my gosh!
2: Oh uh, yeah, and sometimes he would fall asleep in the casting sessions. Once he fell asleep when he was reading, and, and I wow. finally said, "I said, Phil, why don't you go sit on the couch? Let me just do this." And I started reading with the actors myself, and I have done it ever since. And they're they're a little startled when they hear I'm going to read with them. I said, it's okay, it's okay, don't worry about it. Let's just let's just get into it, and they see that I'm not looking at the script. I'm I'm playing it with them, you know, and I'm looking in their eyes and it's good for me as a director because I can see, is anybody home? Yeah, Are they just waiting for their line or are they listening to the sound of my voice, <laughs> you know, or are they really engaging? And, uh, and then I also tell them, look, if you get in the middle of it and you don't like what you're doing, just tell me, we'll start over again. And you do that, you tell that to an actor in a casting session, man, they melt for you. You know, <laughs> they'll go, holy cow, I can really let go and just try something here.
0: So you've really gotten to... Work with actors really, you know, honed your process. Now we've been talking for a little bit, so I hope I can ask you this question. And I feel like, like it's one of those questions, like, oh, do I don't, we know I, each other? Or are you I, right can, yeah, we, I don't yeah. know if he's okay with this. What is Shaq's, process?
2: <laughs> Shaq's <laughs> process? Shaq's process is is professional. That's what his process is.
3: I have read that. Now, if you guys listening are, you know, I know that you know Kenneth Johnson's huge, huge tentpole successes. <laughs> I stepped in this. Um,
1: <laughs>
3: Kenneth Johnson also directed Steel, starring Shaquille O'Neal, the semi-superhero movie.
0: You went back to superhero genre. Can you tell? Because I've never heard you talk about this. What What was that like getting back into a superhero genre with a giant celebrity? <laughs> Literally, giant. Yeah.
2: If an actor was doing a scene with Shaq and they went up on their line, Shaq could tell them their line. I mean, he knew every line in the movie. Let me tell you something. Joel Simon was a producer. Joel and Bill Todman had been partnered for a while back in the 90s. They came, they brought me a project once, actually a comic book product, a project. That they said we think you you you'll really spark to this because it had alienation kind of feel to it in some ways and and other things too. But although it was another sci-fi project. Yeah, it was really I thought a pretty interesting premise, but I said you can't afford to do this as a television show. Let's make a movie. And I said no, no, it needs to be a TV show. We want to do a TV show. And I said, guys, I would love to do this project, but we can't do it as a TV show. You you, you do not have the money to make it work the way it needs to work. And they kept trying, and finally they sold the rights to Brian Singer, who made the X Men, which is uh... what it was. And I would love to have done it. And I thought actually Brian did exactly with it what I would uh, uh, have have aspired to like to do. So Joel, at any rate, was partnered now with. Quincy Jones. As in right. Quincy Jones, big music god, you know, yeah, and a very, very talented guy. Quincy and Joel called me and they said, "Look, we'd like to talk to you. We got a project here at Warner Brothers. It's called Steel. It's an offshoot of Superman, but it's not as he's not a superhero. He's a real guy, and he was a black hero uh, that there hadn't been one like that yet, you know." So I, I heard about what the idea was and the basic premise of it, and they said we'd really like you to write and direct it. And I said, "Um, well, okay, I think we could probably do that, but who do you have in mind, a star?" And he said, "Well, we've we got Shaquille O'Neal attached." To play the lead, and I said, "Right, (laughs) my question persists. Who do you have to star? (laughs) Who's going to open the movie? Because Shaq is not going to open the movie, guys." They said, "Oh wait, but he's going to. He just signed that two hundred and fifty million dollar contract with the Lakers. He was on the front page of everything, and all of that." I said, "That's nice. That's great." But have you seen Kazam? I have. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's. it's uh, you know, there's not. It's. Mm. But not only that. Beyond his, the fact that he had not really acted very much at all, he he wasn't going to open the picture. And I said, "Look, guys, this was for Warner Brothers." I said, "Why did Warner Brothers hire Schwarzenegger to play Mr. Freeze?" You know. It's because George Clooney couldn't open the movie.
1: <laughs> and uh,
2: George Clooney, bless his heart, still barely opens a movie as much as I love him. But they knew with Batman, they got to, So they hired, they paid, you know, $10 million for over 20 or whatever he was for the governor to come in and play the role. It didn't help the movie too much, unfortunately, <laughs> art- artistically. But I said, look, Shaq can play the character, but you got to surround him with other people. I mean, like Christopher Reeve, they surrounded with Marlon Brando and yeah, Gene Hackman, for God's sake. Right. So- So, you know, we just don't want to spend that money. And I kept after it and after him and after him about it. And it was so frustrating because they just wouldn't bend. Uh, Billy Gerber and uh, mostly Lorenzo de Bonaventura who were the co-presidents, go figure, at Warner Brothers, never saw Billy until the very last couple of days. But I kept saying, Lorenzo, you're not going to open a movie for you, man. No, we can can do it. You can do it. It'll be magical. You know, what I realized was it was a poor man's Iron Man without Robert Downey. (laughs) And he didn't fly. And they were in a big hurry because Shaq had a basketball season to go to. He was right. also in the Olympics that year. Oh right. my gosh! And I knew that he was not an actor. And so what I did was I called a dear friend of mine, one of my classmates from Carnegie, Ben Martin, who was also a directing major and a really, really fine director and a wonderful acting teacher. And I said, "Hey, Ben, w- can I pay you to be an acting teacher for Shaq?" And 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 I need you to fly to, Augusta, to I guess they were in Atlanta for the for the Olympics. And and in between basketball games, Ben was was teaching Shaq how to do it. And really rehearsing the scenes with him and going through it and digging in. Okay, so now we would get on the set and we'd be walking through rehearsing it and Shaq would you know pick up something and study it uh, you know that was on a desk or something and I'd say, hey that's cool. Why don't you go with that? And yeah and Shaq would say, Yeah, Ben suggested I do that. that you know? I mean that's the kind of guy Shaq was. He gave credit to everybody. And he and I hit it off you know right from the get go. Except the problem that we had, the only problem I had with Shaq was that, you know, I'd say Cut and I'd go in and, and we'd we'd start talking and I'd start giving him notes about it and, and he wouldn't be looking at me he'd be looking over my head now of course he is over my head you know <laughs> yeah. he's, he's like seven foot four and i said but hey i'd finally wait and say hey man i'm down here shack now look at look at me let's, let's let's talk let's look at each other when we talk he finally said kenny i gotta i gotta explain something man he said, i was raised by a drill sergeant okay
1: and the rule, the, the
2: rule was you never look in the drill sergeant's eyes Because if you do, bam, you know, he clocks you. And I said, Shaq, I want you to be assured I am never going to hit
1: you. (laughs) And
2: and one day on the set, he said, when are you going to start screaming, Kenny? And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, that's what directors do, man. They scream. And I said, "Um, Shaq, who have you worked with? And he said, well, I did a picture with Billy Friedkin and another one with Paul Michael Glazer. I said, oh, okay, Uh, let me explain. (laughs) We're not all like that, Jack. And you will never have me screaming at you. That's not what I do. It doesn't. How would that help you? You know? He said, "No, you're going to do it, man. You're going to blow. There's going to be one day you're going to
0: blow, man."
2: Okay. So now we're we had built this junkyard set up over on uh, so look, overlooking Los Angeles, so that we could get some production value in the background of this junkyard. The producer said, "Why don't we just put a green screen around it?" And I said, "Gee, that would be expensive." And and come why don't we just go to this place that I can show you on the hillside? And you can see all of Los Angeles and its production value. So we were in this junkyard. And I normally a, a Teamster would drive me to the set uh, or, or a PA when I was directing because I, I like to try to go through the day's work while I'm driving, not worry about driving, you know. But that day I had driven my, my little car. I had a 1971 280 SL, little Mercedes two-seater, a little classic that I had driven for, oh God, since 1971. I
1: think.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that day I had driven myself a lot. So... I got there first. I was up on the up on the junkyard set, and Shaq came walking up and said, Hey, sorry about your car, man." I said, "What are you talking about?" He said, Oh, one one of the teamsters, man. They backed the truck into it." And I said, "Really?" He said, "Yeah, yeah, I man. You should see it. I mean, the whole front end it smashed, man." I said, "Come on." He said, "No, no, really. It's your your car that used—it's gone. It's crashed." I said, "Wow, that's really a drag." All right, come over here. Let's start rehearsing, you know.
3: And he said, wait a
2: minute. I know how much you love that car. I'm telling you, it's fucked up, man, you know. And I, and I said, Shaq, wait, 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 chill. Chill, let me, let me tell you something. If that happened, okay, I'll take your word for it. That happened. Well, I got to tell you something. I got a transportation department. I guarantee you if something has happened to that car, it's already gone and it's being fixed.
1: <laughs>
2: I don't have to give it a second thought. And he said, "Man, you're not going to scream? And it's funny because uh, lunchtime, uh, it was a female teamster who was taking a lot of shit for the fact that she had been the one that backed the truck into the front of my little car. And she came to my trailer, and she was just sobbing. And I said, Lorraine, Lorraine, honey, what's wrong? Did they just diagnose you with leukemia? And she said, no, it's your car. And I, said, I said, please, come on, get over it. It's nothing. Don't worry about it. They're going to fix it. It'll all be fine tell those big lugs that are, that are teasing you they can go fuck themselves because uh, I got your back, girl.
0: That's amazing.
2: <laughs> so anyway, the, the movie was fun. Annabeth Gish was good. It was challenging. Uh, when I do my class, I, one of the things I talk about are things that eat up your time on the set. I call them the time eaters. How yeah. clever. And I always tell them <laughs> you're a writer, huh? But one of the things is is night, which really eats up your time. And also, when you are working with a black actor, you got to give yourself a little more lighting time uh, because, particularly with Shack, his skin was like velvet black. It was so beautiful, but it also sucked up light. And then, of course, his leading lady was the whitest white chick in America,
1: right? Oh. <laughs> and we'd
2: have some times where there'd be two shots where they'd be sitting side by side, where we had to get four times the light on Shack as we did on Annabeth, who was like. Six inches away from him, yeah? Yeah. So there I am making a movie at night about a black eye who wears a black suit and, <laughs> and 35 of our 50 shooting days were at night. But we had a great time. I had uh, a lot of crew that I had worked with before. And the same with when we did V, part of the reason we were able to, v- to do V originally on such a short ter- uh, schedule, uh, such a g- ridiculously short prep, was because it was the bulk of the crew was my ha- family crew from, from the Hulk, who had just finished do- at Universal on the Hulk. And they all came over to Warner's to work with me on uh, on V. So we had had. Five years of, of shorthand, you know, right? And also the incredible talents. I mean, Chuck Davis, my production designer, designed all the spacecraft and all the swastika and all that stuff over a weekend, literally over wow. a weekend, and had to figure out how to make spaceships that were like Legos that we could take apart and put together different ways. That's one of the exciting things about trying to do it as a movie. Movie is that now we don't have to build all those spaceships. We can make them as, and, and I can make them as big as I want because back then we had to make them so they could be transported on a truck somewhere. Now all we need is the door. To Get into it, you know. That's the only piece we need. The rest of it will be CGI, and nobody will ever know. Right. We've already started doing some previs stuff because I built a huge set on stage twenty-five at Warner Brothers, where the in the landing bay of the mothership was. And it was a really big set, and we only built on half the stage because we couldn't afford the whole stage. And and on, I and I could be, I managed to do one matte painting that didn't even look very good. So I ended up putting it on a TV screen in the in the original miniseries because I didn't. I was scared of trying to put it on full screen that it would look cheesy. And you couldn't move the it was it was awful, and now <laughs> when we walk into the mothership in the new in the new movie, it's going to be like really really what I always saw in my head and was unable to do at the time because of the limitations of the state of the art of visual effects at the time. I mean, there were a couple of shots in V with ships flying through and attacking the camp and all that sort of stuff that cost like $75,000 for about uh, maybe 20 seconds of film that you could do on your cell phones today guys
1: right.
2: and it would look better than what I did and I knew it back then and it was so frustrating it was uh, it was like Cameron not being able to do the Terminator 2 the way that he wanted to until on Abyss they figured out how to do the the water worm you know mm. and then he said okay that's how we do it the technology had not caught up with where I needed to be, and now it has. Right. I mean, if we can get this movie off the ground, I will make a movie that'll knock everybody's socks off, if, if I'm allowed, if they leave me alone enough and let me do what I know will work. One of the great things about being at that session at the con with you guys, for example, is that I've been face to face with my fans. And when I did the DVD, uh, the VDVD originally, uh, the original one back in two thousand one or two. And I did the director's commentary on it. And that's where we did that behind-the-scenes thing that you saw in the Blu-ray. That was on the original DVD, too. I just I just knew that it could be... I was so frustrated because it, I couldn't get it to look the way that I wanted. But I, I also gave an email address where people could write if they had comments or questions, which now falls into the Beware What You Wish For category. <laughs> of all of the emails that I get from all of the other shows combined are not a tenth of what I get about, about V. And so much of them uh, are, are what you, like you said about how they come from kids who say, I first saw it when I was eight or 10 or 12 years old, and I love the razzle dazzle and business you know all that sort of stuff. A lot of them were not as astute as you as a fifth grader, my boy. But they say, now I'm watching it as I'm 35 years old and I'm watching it with my kids. And I'm going, oh holy shit, there was a lot more going on here than I realized, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I think that's the really the key to why my stuff has been as successful as it has in in the area of science fiction, which is because I've always been more interested in. And the substance and the characters getting the performances right and the emotional stuff right. And then everything else follows. If, if the right. emotional stuff isn't there, then, you know, what's going on?
0: Well, I have to say, as, as somebody who is a visual effects supervisor and I mm-hmm. work with a lot of CGI and get to work with that technology, one of the biggest keys and part of why I think you shouldn't. I mean, I understand the frustration, but you definitely should still be proud of what you did because You knew what you could do, and you used the limitations to do what you could do well within the show, and it's consistent. Everything looks like it fits in the world that you created. When the spaceships fly, you use the technique that worked to get it done the way it needed to be done. And when people try something inconsistently... That's mm-hmm. when it shows out the flaws of why it doesn't work.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I can't tell you how many times Susie has been sitting beside me in the theater and we're watching the movie and she'll go, now, is that real? Boy, well, something's wrong. It doesn't feel real. It doesn't right. feel right. right yeah. And one of the things that I try to get across to my directing students is that it's those little psychological touches that are intangible and an and audience cannot necessarily tell you why it feels wrong, but it just does. Either gravity isn't working quite the way that it should or, uh, you know, cameras can't really move that fast that well to follow Spidey through the streets like that. But yet they get away with it on Spidey because it's Spidey, you know, but again, you're in that world. And to me, what was most important about V was trying to keep it as, as much in the real world as I possibly, possibly could. And even the reptilian thing came out of the fact that uh, and he, uh, Michael Durrell's character, uh, Robert Maxwell, even says it in the miniseries, that reptilian race could happen right here on Earth, guys, <laughs> you know. Yeah. If that meteor hadn't hit us 65 million years ago, the reptiles could be uh, in charge.
0: Now the reptilian thing—that's become a huge conspiracy theory in the (laughs) real world. As far as I can tell, you're the first one to do it, and it's like, wait, Wait, wait—that's a real
3: thing that you both know about?
0: Yeah,
2: people, people, (laughs) lizard people. You're
3: both lizard people. Never heard about the real the reptilian conspiracy? I'm calling it right now. You're both lizards. I know it.
0: (laughs) No, no, no. Just kidding. But the first time I ever heard that people were like actually believe that the government is run by reptilian aliens. I was like, you mean that the show V, you watched V, and you think that's real. Like <laughs> you yeah, like, no, yeah. no, no, no
2: no no, 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 It's that shit is out there. Right. I think frankly, it was probably out there before before I came along, so? but certainly I fanned the flames, I guess.
0: Where did the lizard come from? At what point were you like, they're lizards? There it is.
2: Well, I knew it had to, I knew it had to be something that that I, I, logic. It just came from logic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know I, I tried to sit there and, and when I was thinking it up, and I said, what's the most logical way to have an alien creature? that still is a biped and, and walks around on this place. I don't remember the moment when I said, oh, well, it really needs to be reptilian, but also they're creepy. Uh, there's yeah. that too. But the main reason for me was that I could I could put the line in to say, don't be shocked about the fact that they're reptiles, guys, because the, the reptiles ruled the earth until the meteor hit and right. the, the cloud went up around the earth. They couldn't handle, you can't handle the heat. <laughs> the mammals survived and uh, here we are. And if that had not happened, it was entirely possible that a reptilian race could have emerged, and, right. uh, which offered me this chilling challenge uh, to figure out what I was going to do for V, the second generation, when I needed uh, an enemy of the visitors, and what kind of aliens would they be? Uh, and again, I had to try to say, okay, well, what's the most logical thing? Well, who, who exists? when everything else is gone well the insects do and how do i play with that and that's that's where my uh, my race came from in the uh, in the v the second generation which hopefully will in a perfect world guys i'll make this movie of v the movie and only by then it'll just be called v it'll be like when uh, you you wouldn't remember but when superman uh, richard donner's superman first came out for the whole time that it was before it hit the screen, it was called Superman the movie, yeah. until you got to the theater, and then it was just Superman, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know? You and knew where and you I'll were. tell you something else funny about it, if, if this is one of the things I love to tell students, it reminds tell students about a lot of them don't know it, but John Williams is, is famous for, for doing this. Indiana Jones, the main theme from Indiana Jones, bum-ba-bum-bum, bum, bum, right? Yeah. What's the hero's name? Indiana? Right. Indiana, bum-ba-bum-bum. Bum, bum.
0: Ah.
2: That's where it comes from. Huh. My favorite, though, is what he did with Superman. Because if, li- if you listen to, the- and it's the greatest theme he ever wrote for the movie, because first of all, it's bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum, which if you think about it is Superman, Superman.
1: <laughs> and then he
2: goes bum-bum-bum-bum-bum, bum 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 Okay, let me tell you what that is. Look up in the sky, it's a bird. Look up in the sky, Superman. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> My old composer, Joe Harnell, who worked with me a lot, uh, used to use that that same kind of thing a lot of times, where I'd say something and he'd say, okay, I'm going to use that word and turn it into the theme.
0: Because V's one syllable, it's hard to make a song with it, right? Well, see, no, I'll tell you, I
2: knew Joe was going to write the score for me. He'd done a lot of the Bionic Woman episodes for me. We had met when I was producing the Mike Douglas show back East before you were born, gentlemen. <laughs> it was the first daytime talk show in the country and the biggest and uh, and I was hired by this guy named wait for it, Roger Ailes to uh, to be his producer. He was executive producer. He was 27, I was 24. Yeah. Suddenly, I was on this talk show. We did 90 minutes a day, six times a week, live. And everybody in the world came through because everybody was, every actor, every writer, every politician came through. And that's where Roger Ailes met, guess who? Richard Nixon told Nixon, I can get you elected and you need a media advisor. And he said, what's a media advisor, Roger? And he said, I am. And Nixon hired Roger to be his media advisor. And I ended up taking over the Mike Douglas show, the number one. It was like we had we were in like 175 markets. It was a huge, huge talk show. And, and I just wanted to go home to Hollywood and make movies i didn't want to do any more talk show stuff i didn't want to do it to begin with but roger seduced me so <laughs> after a year i finally came out uh, came out here
0: you're so full of great hollywood stories
3: one thing i definitely want to ask you though sure what we went over before Aaron does visual effects i used to do practical special effects and right. for, for years oh, right. one of the things that absolutely was an influence was the original v miniseries that whole scene where donovan's in the air ducts and he ends up grappling with that one guy and ripping his face up i mean i'll I'll have alzheimer's before i forget that scene i see that in the behind the scenes footage and i've heard you in other interviews both in print and audio interviews i've heard you talk about you having a physical hand in those effects like for example if i'm not mistaken you operated the diana head the fake head that opened her mouth when they stuffed the gerbil in (laughs)
2: Uh, Yeah, I did once. I just wanted to make sure I understood how it was working. I always like to know how things are working. There's some very, very, very funny outtakes of that that I I show in my my classroom of all the poor guinea pigs that we terrorized. (laughs) None of them died in the course of it, but several of them did go to therapy.
3: (laughs) But they're getting those residual checks, right?
2: Well, what happened was we're sitting at the production meeting where you're going through the script line by line. And we got to the scene where, okay, Diana picks up a guinea pig, and she opens her mouth wider than it should, and her jaw distends, and then uh, she shoves this guinea pig in, and we see it go down her throat. And then there was this quiet little moment sitting there in the production meeting with the whole team, and then there was a little chuckle, and everybody sort of giggling. And uh, Tom Reba, my special effects guy, said, um, how are we going to do that, Kenny? (laughs) And I said, beat the shit out of me, Tom. You
1: know,
2: (laughs) you're the special effects guy. I said, why don't you get with Werner Kepler, our makeup guy, and see what you guys can come up with. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> and I love to challenge my crews like that, uh, you know, to throw it back at them and engage their creativity. And Werner ended up building, uh, he did a life mask on Jane and then they did a created a head and then Tom figured a rig that they could build to make the jaw open up. It's actually Jane's hand that is feeding the guinea pig into it. Jane is right behind, uh, behind the head. It's, it really looks cheesy, well, partly because I couldn't shoot it at the same time that I shot Jane. As a matter of fact, it, it was coming into Christmas week and we, had, we were at the end of our shoot, and I had one more day of filming to do, and Warner said, no, we're going to stop shooting right now, and We'll let you put it together and then we'll see if we need anything else. I said guys, that's crazy. I've got one more day of filming. these are the shots that I need. I know exactly what I need including Jane eating the guinea pig you know so no no, we're gonna shut down until you figure it out we so okay I said fine so they shut down they put everything on hold. the whole crew was on hold getting paid hello and the sets everything and um, a month later I had the final cut. And guess what I needed? Exactly the shots that I told them I was going to need. But it had cost them an extra million dollars of budget money just, you know, because they wouldn't listen to me to begin with. And, and the sets were gone where we had shot the stuff originally, so I had to piece the thing together with Jane. And it was, a, you know, now we can, and we, we can do it with CGI and stuff. But uh, getting the guinea pig to go down her throat was there was a prosthetic uh, with three air bladders in it. And Tommy Reba gave me a little flute-like thing to play with, with, with little three, had three holes in it. If I put my hang finger over the first hole, the top air bladder inflated. If I let it off, took it off, then the, it deflated. And if I put my finger over the second hole, the second bladder on her neck inflated. So Jane and I just practiced her going through the movement of swallowing and me doing her throat. Yeah, so I physically did the, the swallowing right along with her.
3: Do you think that you were so hands-on with that stuff because of who you were and the production you were running? Or was it be like a product of the time where it's a little bit more loser?
2: Remember an alien when when the, they got the face hugger and the, and it's it's splayed out now and they're they're poking at it with things and uh, yeah. that was
3: another formative scene for me absolutely when they're moving around the clam and the seafood stuff.
2: That's right, that's right. It was just a bunch of clams and, clam and oysters and stuff. That we, but but before that, when they're looking, actually, it's the earlier scene when they're looking into the um, egg and they see something in the bottom going. Oh yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, that's Ridley Scott's hands inside there doing it.
3: Oh, I never knew that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, if you haven't listened to Ridley's commentary on his DVD for Alien, it's great, because it's full of stuff like that all the way through about how, you know, when they did the the chest explosion, he had not told the actors what to expect, and had all the cameras running, and none of them knew what the fuck was going to happen, and uh, that's part of the reason their reactions are so what they are.
0: Priceless. Kenny. Thank you so much for coming to the Launchpad Podcast. We've had such a good time talking to you, hearing these amazing stories. We we cannot tell you how much we appreciate it.
3: it- I want to hear more stories. We would absolutely love to have you come back.
2: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Any player down the road, and particularly if, if the movie uh, you know, begins to actually take shape and get off the ground, it would be fun to have you guys sort of follow along through the process. Oh, we would love and do- oh, to do that. Oh my
0: gosh! Speaking my sure. language too, so man. So cool. Great. Sure. Where can people keep up with you? Do you have any anywhere that people, website, email, yeah, anything
2: yeah, yeah. like there's that? A, there's, a, uh, there's a, if you actually, if you just Google Kenneth Johnson, uh, it comes up, writer, usually the first one that comes up is a writer, producer, director, or original, you know, of an right. uh, official website. The actual website is KennethJohnson.us. And, uh, and there's also on Facebook, uh, there is a Kenneth Johnson author, you know, as in author, as in books, you know, because I've, I've had a couple of novels in the last, uh, couple of years. One of them became an Amazon bestseller, actually, but we'll talk about that another time. Thank you. But yeah, so Kenneth Johnson author on Facebook and, uh, uh, kennethjohnson.us on the net and, uh, there's also a link where, <laughs> I'm going to say it, there's a link where you can send a letter to Kenny if you want to, and uh, an email, and uh, and I will get back to you. I really try to answer all the emails I get, which is not easy. It's Kenny C. Johnson, all one word, Kenny, initial C. Johnson, at readyaol.com.
3: Now, you say ready, <laughs> but... <laughs> uh, no joke, an hour ago, Aaron was making fun of me because, as you know, we've been emailing each other. I have an AOL address. I know, and I was so excited and... to know
2: that I was not the only person in the universe that still used it. But you know, And the reason I have kept it, frankly, is because I put it on that DVD. Mm. And uh, originally, because back then I didn't have a website in, two, in, when I, in 2001 when I first did the DVD commentary for V, So I wanted to make sure people would not write to me and not be able to get through, you know. So that's why I've kept AOL all these damn years.
0: That's amazing.
2: But it's it's just great to hear from people and, and I love it. Naturally, I have created a few macros over the years because a lot of the same questions come up. But generally, uh, I really try to personalize and let everybody know that. If they're going to take the time to write, man, I appreciate them uh, getting back, and, and they should get my my response. And also, you know, one of the things I love about it is that it's like being in front of the audience at Comic Con. It's like being right. in direct touch with your audience. Right. It's a magical thing, and I'm really um, excited when people take the time to write. Hey guys, I'm sorry I rambled on. I really am, but uh, anyway, keep me posted on what's happening, and uh, down the road we'll uh, we'll do it again. Sure. Anyway, guys, thanks for your patience. Uh, call me back sometime, and we'll we'll talk some more.
0: Thank you, Kenny. We really this is. Gone so much better than I could have hoped. You never know what it's going to be like, so we're we're just so oh, thankful I know. that like you had. Have... I
2: did the Mike Douglas. When I doing the Mike Douglas show, you never know when you're going to have a turkey. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and, and you never know because yeah. it's like a lot of these people. You know, you'll ask somebody, like, ah, I don't really remember, and you're like, okay, well. Right. That's been great, right. folks. You know, but you had all the stories and such good gems.
2: Well, no, that's it. And I mean, I, I when I did when I did all the DVD commentaries and stuff, I always had all of my notes and my old, all my crew lists there and everything, because I hate those DVD commentaries where they say, well, now he's walking from the right side of the screen to the left side <laughs> of the screen. <laughs> yes, thanks I've for letting him me already. know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, or my other favorite is, oh, I love this scene. This is my favorite scene you know it's like no well, just tell me about it where would you shoot it what lens did you use right. how many cameras did you have going you, you know what's going to on learn. Sure.
0: anyway we could get a whole
2: thing and that's about the thing that is yeah you've
3: done so many things that Aaron and I are super passionate about that we love so again thanks Good. for taking a little bit to talk to us if you have the time we will absolutely oh, have you will. back we'll, on oh we will we'll get
2: back and we'll do it again fellas and uh, and bless your hearts thanks for caring thanks this Kenny we really great. appreciate it <laughs> okay talk to you soon
0: guys That was Kenneth Johnson, just a producer, director, writer extraordinaire doing some amazing stuff. As you heard, you can follow him on the web and keep up with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at LaunchpadPod and our website, LaunchpadPod.com. Till next time, we're the Rocketeers, and we are out.
1: Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. We have a lookout!